Hi, I'm Jess and I'm the oldest. Oi, I'm the oldest. I'm Shtee, I'm the dad and this is actually my podcast. And I'm Tommy, I'm the youngest. Welcome to the podcast. At the heart of hearts, we're all very creative. I've had a very interesting life. You've travelled all over the world. I remember being... Oh, interesting. This is not how I remember this story. story, story, story. Pints are not a good measure for filling Jacobs as fuel. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to episode 25... Well, no, welcome back Welcome back to the Podclarks, but welcome to episode 25 of the Podclarks. Episode 25! Hello. Hello. We've, we, hello. Hello. Uh, there we hello. go. Hello. <laughs> oh, there's an echo going on here, and they all sound rather familiarly ill. Everybody's here. It's the full Podclarks clan. So... Here we go, episode 25. We've had the drum roll, we've had the intro. Shdi, what stories do you have for us today? Well, I am going to start by a confession or an admittance or something like that. <gasps> but um, last time, episode 24, uh, we billed it as the trailer for the rest of, our, of life, basically, because it was like <laughs> a sliding doors moment. And, um, and that was what we thought at the time. But actually, this month, I'm going to go backwards to 1994 so mostly this merry dance through my life is in a forward direction but there are some significant um event events and uh, anecdotes which for security reasons i left out the first time around now i say (laughs) security reasons because i've noted that people say that whenever they've forgotten to do something and they're covering up for an error in the past so anyway there are things that i forgot to say which i think are worth saying and this story I'm going to take most of the podcast to tell you this one story. So you'll have to stick with it, dear listener. <laughs> and hope, hope, hope you find it's worthwhile. Oh, just by, an, uh, yes, by referencing the last um, uh, podcast, oh, number 25, uh, we had a great saga about Las Vegas, if you remember it, and the, um, the Pirate Hotel. And I remembered mm. after recounting that old saga that it was my phony friend, uh, reference episode five, who I went with and when I came back because he had asked me to accompany him and when we came back from Las Vegas he paid me which had been the plan all along from my point of view but you never guess what he paid me in dollars he paid phones not dollars well nearly he paid me in cars (laughs) (laughs) well more accurately a car car I was going to say how how many cars did you he paid me in car (laughs) but he gave me a car as, as my as my 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 payment and this was a rover 800 um cars featuring heavily in our podcast podcast and our lives in the past but the rover 800 was a very swanky card indeed and it belonged to his sales director who you may remember had perforated his, his eardrum and couldn't go to las vegas which is why i was asked to go and his uh, sales director no longer needed that car uh, because he'd been fired so it's long enough oh. ago for nobody to care about or know or recognise the story. So no value to them. No, exactly. And our, our family was a beneficiary of this rather swanky car, which I tell you all of that because that was the car that was involved in a road accident in George Street in Leamington Spa when at least Tommy was sitting in the back. I don't know mm. about anyone else, but uh, I don't know if you remember that small incident. I think I do, but... I also feel like there's some weird cursed history with George Street where there was like five road accidents, but I don't know if that's true or not. 
Um, well, the next line but, of my script says that I've, in 50 years of driving, I've only ever had two accidents, and both of them have been in George. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. I do, I do actually remember it relatively clearly, but I don't know if it was mixing up with the other one, because I don't know if I was mm. present to that one as well. But I remember coming out of the car and going up to an office somewhere and being with Angie, and I think she gave me a lolly. That's what I remember. <laughs> Good old Angie. Yeah, shout out to Angie. Um, no, well, what, what was happening? Both, both the accidents I had in George Street were at very low, um, low speed, funnily enough. And this, this one was actually parking the car. And it was, I'd just taken delivery of it, coming back from Las Vegas. And I hadn't ever really driven an automatic before. And I now know this to be a problem, that, that you get muddled up with the pedals because there's no clutch. And uh, I was parking, and it, uh, as you know, an automatic car, or you might know, creeps forward if you don't do anything. If you haven't got your foot on the brake, it, it just creeps forward of its own account. And um, so I parked and took my foot off the brake, and it, it started creeping backwards because my last manoeuvre had been in reverse. And so I thought, well, i better stop this, and I touched the brake, which turned out to be the accelerator. So it sped the car backwards, and... Um, that would have been not too bad, except that I thought I've got to push this brake harder. Part of me said stop doing everything because I could feel we were going. But another part of my brain said push this brake harder to stop more quickly. So mm. I absolutely cat- catapulted back into a line of parked cars. And I went into the parked car behind me, which pushed into the car park behind it, which pushed into the car <laughs> park. Park. <laughs> 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 the parked car. The parked car. <laughs> all of which would have been just funny and amusing and an insurance claim had there not be an, been an elderly man loading some groceries into the boot of his car two cars back so unfortunately mm. he got he got his legs trapped between the two um the two cars so it it, it was a bit of a shame really because, i mean he was he he made a full recovery but um, it was very uncomfortable for him at that moment and and I remember feeling sort of terribly guilty about that. But then the other accident was just down the road where I pulled out of George Street into one other street and a motorbike hit me in the side. I did, he came from nowhere. I don't know where he came from. My, my fault, because I pulled out in front of him. But he was going about 20 miles an hour and I was going about four miles an hour. And I just remember as as I looked out the windscreen, he came sliding across the bonnet and his face was towards me. <laughs> and I just, it was like, he was kind of like, what's going on here? He was surprised more than anything else. <laughs> And um, and then and he slid across the bonnet and went onto the floor the other side. But um, he uh, he 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 started making quite a noise. And within two minutes, the police were there. I don't know where they came from. And within two and a half minutes, this chap's family were all there because they all lived around the, the area. So the, there was a bit of a hullabaloo going on. The police put me into their police car for my protection <laughs> because because the family mm-hmm. were getting all kind of what are you doing. And I said, oh, of course, he doesn't sound in a good way because he was shouting. And they said, oh, don't worry about him. He said, it's when they go quiet that it hurts. He said, if they shout, it doesn't really hurt. So, so anyway, that's, <laughs> and, that's all, and, and that's all I know about those two accidents. I did have a joke that I was sitting on, but it's, the moment has passed, but I'm going to say it anyway because I, otherwise I feel like my life was not fully lived. Um, but I was going to say <laughs> that when Andrew paid you in a car, that was his because it's his favourite currency. <laughs> <laughs> So I mean, you really did sit on that. Well, I that that was from like it was, five but you know ago. when it's like since you're the editor, you could just move it to the. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> very true. Very true. Yeah, no, well, here's one. It was very carless of me to do those two accidents anyway, but. Um, <laughs> oh. yeah. 
So I'm going to go back to 1994, just and there's a sort of sobering introduction to this story, which is a, I mean, I think this is one of my great stories, by which I mean I loved it from start to finish. Okay, so nobody else <laughs> may may think anything, but the the backdrop is very tragic, um, and I suppose part of the um, reason for that is the kind of work that I've been involved in and work, was involved in uh, with refugees around the world. Um, so this is going back to Rwanda in 1994. And a little bit of the backstory, as you may or may not know, um, Rwanda and Burundi, uh, which featured in the episode of Leaving Zambia, if you remember, we came up the lake on the boat to Burundi. Well, Rwanda and Burundi are two small countries uh, in the sort of South Central Africa that border into each other. And both of them have um, largely two main groups of people, uh, not exclusively, but mainly Hutus and Tutsis, which are two very distinct um, uh, ethnic groups, if you like. And um, there's always, historically, there's been sort of tension between those groups. And at any one time, one of those groups in Rwanda might be in power and the other might not. Uh, so at this particular time, it was the Hutu uh, tribe that were in the government in in uh, Rwanda, and there was a lot of trouble. There was a a, a rebel rebel group that was um, largely made up of the the Tutsi um, group, and there was a lot of fighting and unrest, and had been for two or three years. So um, regionally, the presidents of Burundi and Rwanda were were on a flight coming into land at Kigali, which is the capital of of Rwanda. And that flight was shot down and both those presidents were killed. Um, I I think people disagree to this day as to which particular faction or which particular group um, shot the plane down, but they were both Hutu presidents who who were shot down. And uh, whoever, however that came about, the... Uh, opposition rebel movement and their supporters from the Tutsi group um, reacted and in order to defend themselves the Hutu group now this is a very great simplification and if any historians are listening then please correct me but it's it's a simplification but the Hutu group uh, were responding in kind and um, I don't recommend reading the Wikipedia page on this but if you do it's like a catalogue of how brutal one person can be to another uh, for no real obvious reason or outcome but it was a, a period that you might have read about or you've heard about a hundred days of what is now called the Rwandan genocide um, and uh, there were villagers neighbours who took to attacking each other who've been lived in side by side for years um, churches were implicated bishops were implicated um, or when I say bishops, I mean clergy, uh, were implicated. And it was like suddenly um, madness overtook people uh, for those hundred days. Um, and of course it created a huge refugee um, crisis because people fled, and they fled largely in two directions, to Tanzania, which was um, on the eastern side of Rwanda, and to Zaire, which is now the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, to the west. So you had all these people fleeing and it's believed that up to half a million people were killed in those 100 days. And Rwanda more or less emptied um, of people as they fled that terrible sort of interaction. So anyway, what's that to do 
with my story, it created this huge refugee problem. And the committee of cords that I worked for were saying, we should do something. And they sent Martin, my boss, um, to uh, out on a plane to uh, Rwanda to see what needed to be done. And he quickly organised a team to go out to Tanzania and a team to go out to uh, uh, to um, Congo, uh, Dem- Democratic Republic Congo, to, to start meeting people's basic needs because all this large number of thousands of people had arrived with, n- with not much to live on or, or, or buy. So very quickly we got those two programmes running. Um, now, such groups of people need things to operate with and, you know, materials, equipment, supplies... And so it was it was deemed that a relief flight should be organised. And um, it it fell to me to organise this, which, I mean, you know, why not? Um, I'd repaired a car in my garage, in my dad's garage. I'd been the best paper boy in Surrey. Why shouldn't I um, charter a, a flight to Africa? Um, and like everything, you know, the first time you do it, you wonder what on earth you're doing. And gradually, with advice and help from other people, um, you find a way through it. But... Uh, the 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 trick was um most of the supplies were needed in in zaire to the to the west um but also two land rovers were needed in uh, the program in tanzania to the east so could these both be met by one flight and oh, of course they could and so logistically the idea was to fill this plane with um <clears throat> uh, three land rovers two for uh, tanzania and one for zaire and all sorts of other things like, uh, I don't know, medical supplies, uh, water containers, keep fresh water in, um, uh, uh, high energy biscuits, which were, were really important for people who, who hadn't been had enough nutrition. And uh, so then you start to, to sort of calculate volumes, weights um, and uh, all sorts of different things to see what can fit in the space available uh, and be 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 taken to these two two countries it was very interesting job and i had a lot of help with it um but the thing that was bothering me all the time was two land rovers were needed in um tanzania so if we dropped those off on the way we'd be flying half empty plane to the final destination mm-hmm. and so then i discovered that water bottles were cheaper in Kenya, which was on the way to these two countries. Uh, so it, I thought to myself, if we drop those Land Rovers off in Kenya on the way and fill up the plane, two Land Rover shapes worth of the plane with water bottles, um, <laughs> then everyone wins because we've got a better value water bottle um, sourced locally in Africa. And also you're not flying an empty plane base. Um, so this was, let's say, optimistic at best, really, that all of this <laughs> could, could work out. And I don't know if you've ever tried to work out how many water bottles will fit into the space a Land Rover takes up. <laughs> it is not I easy. I can't say I have, but... I was doing that just today, actually. <laughs> <laughs> not. No, yes. well, the, the, other, the other thing is that, the, as you can imagine, the, the shape of the aeroplane is curved on one side. So you fit them onto these pallets that are sort of got a right angle in the middle and a mm. curve to fit in, and the plane is then full up with these pallets. So um, anyway, but then if you drop the Land Rovers off in, in Kenya, how are you going to get them down to, to Tanzania? You need a couple of drivers, you see. So this is where my phony friend Andrew and his business partner Dick, um, I want to say volunteered, but that's, that's not quite right. I mean, I, let's say they were persuaded 
to come on this flight and drop off in Kenya with these Land Rovers and drive them down after the plane had taken off to go on to the next stop uh, to, to Tanzania, which was about four days drive, I think, something like that. Through, by the way, the Serengeti, which is one of the most sort of amazing game parks. Um, and that was the, you know, that was the, the main road to, between the two countries. Hmm. So, um, so they volunteered to do that. And we all pitched up at Gatwick. There was uh, Andrew, Dick, me, the pilot, the co-pilot, and what's called a loadmaster. And the, the loadmaster is responsible for making sure that the plane is balanced um, so that it, it takes off rather than stays on the ground when you try and take off. Um, and they have all sorts of ways of calculating this, except that this particular loadmaster was going through a personal crisis. Um, I don't know partic- I don't know the reason for it, but I know that on the tarmac at Gatwick, um, which was sort of in a commercial area, it wasn't like um, passenger planes by the terminal, it was out in a separate area, and there were, we were sort of trying to load this plane. Um, and it, he started sort of saying how he, he didn't, he had had enough of life really, and he was he couldn't see any future or any hope. And I was thinking, gosh, this really isn't the sort of person you want to have your life depending on. Because he he previously told me that his decisions on how to balance the plane would be critical as to whether the plane took off or not. And in wow. the course of this conversation, he was sort of saying, I don't know if I can really be bothered with anything anymore. And I was thinking, yes, yes, you can. No, please, <laughs> please be bothered. Please yeah. be bothered with yeah. it. And um, and of course you know Andrew, you've met him. He's a he's a sort of upbeat, colourful guy. So between the two of us, we were we were sort of having japes, telling jokes, um, not being carless or careless. You know, just and cracking anything we could to jolly him along. And you know, his spirit seemed to lift, and um, he took a bit more interest in the whole process. Uh, and finally, we all we all got on board. I mean, there was there were no more seats than for all. There were just enough seats for us in a tiny little cabin behind the cockpit. And behind us were these three Land Rovers, medical supplies um, and, uh, and all the rest of it. And rolled down the runway, took off, fortunately. Thank you, Loadmaster. Right. <laughs> um, all was well. But I, I just can remember thinking when we, you know, it's about, I don't know, six or seven hour flight to Nairobi, I think. And the plane came into land and it was taxiing around. It was the dead of night by then. Um, and uh, sort of the taxiing around looking out and... The plane came to a stop at this stand where it had been allocated. And I know you're going to answer this question, and the answer is not a stuffed parrot. Guess what was outside the window when I looked to have the, the taxi point? A Land Rover. Water bottles. Hey! Oh, it was the water, of it course, was the because they're not, in, were, they're not in there yet, yes. They're not in there yet, no. And I didn't know to that moment whether all the money I'd sent and the orders we'd commission to this company in who knows where uh would result in water bottles on the tarmac in the middle of the night in nairobi airport i i mean i i had to guess <laughs> they probably wouldn't be with all the best will in the world anyway there they were and um one land two land rovers were un- unloaded dick and andrew were un- oh yeah and as the plane came into land by the way we discovered that um uh because it was a bit cramped in the cabin behind the cockpit one we took it in turns to go and sit in one of the Land Rovers which was more comfortable um <laughs> because and so we were sort of sitting there and Andrew was happened to be in this Land Rover when we came into land which I mean he wasn't supposed to be because you were supposed to be I was in gonna the, say yeah, yeah. strapped <laughs> in supposed, surely supposed to be well that was the funny thing because as he woke he woke up 
and he could see there were lights outside and we were coming to land. He said the only thing he could think of was to put the Land Rover seatbelt on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, probably better than nothing. And put the tray tables up and shut his window yeah. blinds, of course. We offloaded, offloaded those two um, volunteers, two Land Rovers, and they then found that although the driver's seats... Now, what was it? No, I can't remember. Anyway, they, they, they weren't very comfortable to drive. Something had been taken out for transit that made it difficult to drive. But anyway, they, they did, and they went down to Tanzania. They got stuck at the border for um, three days, I think, because they had some radio equipment they were taking, and the, the border guards thought they were going to be um, sort of fueling the insurrection or the, the, the rebel movement. Anyway, they did eventually meant it, make it and got home, and they lived to tell the tale. And um, just as a, an aside in brackets... Uh, Andrew and Dick at that time were running this uh, large language learning company um, which uh, sold software for for learning all sorts of languages. Now, um, Dick still does run that. um, And about, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 weeks ago or something, I came across here in France a Nigerian family um, who had arrived in France as refugees and didn't speak any French. And they were obviously needing to, to settle and I thought, oh, I know how one could help. And I thought the best way is if they could, could learn French. So I, I rang Dick up in his London office and said, what would be the chance of, of um, donating um, some software to this, to this family so they could learn, learn French? And without a hesitation, he said, yep. And this was like Christmas Eve, so it's a bit more than 15 weeks ago. Um, it was just <laughs> before Christmas. And it, it turned out that they'd missed the daily shipment from that factory. So Dick went out on his own as chief executive, wrapped it up, addressed it, stamped it, took it to the post office and posted it so that it could get to the address in time to be brought back to France. So, and I, I'm pretty sure the reason he did that, um, partly, is because of that experience um, going to Africa, which he, he says he would never forget. Um, mm. So, anyway, that was only half the story because... We loaded the water bottles on. In my memory, I like to think they exactly fitted and there were none left over, but I can't really be sure of that. But anyway, <laughs> it was a, a, a good quantity went on. And we took off. Uh, and uh, it's a fairly shortish flight to Goma Airport in uh, what was then Zaire. And because it was a big crisis, there were lots of refugees. It was a small airport with one runway, no kind of real facilities there. Um, you had to book your slot to land two or three days ahead because the planes were all just following each other in from aid from all around the world, you know, from Saudi Arabia, from um, the United States, from Canada, from all all sorts of places people were wanting to help. So it was a really big news story. And so you had to book your slot. And if you missed your slot, who knows what would happen? So anyway, all was well, took off on time, heading for our slot, and we landed, which was great. Except that when we got onto the ground at Goma Airport, this was in Zaire, um, the news was broken to us that the scissor jack lift had, was not working. And that's like a platform. I don't know if you can imagine it. It goes up mm. on kind of concertina things. And it comes like up a like cherry a... cherry picker without the barriers. Exactly. <laughs> and, it... <laughs> and it comes up to sort of... Uh, the plane's door height so that you can, for example, dro- drive a Land Rover onto it and just bring it down Oh, again. gosh, I'd forgotten <laughs> about the Land Rover. I was thinking water bottles is a massive pain, but at least you can, like, drop them off the end. But you can't really do much about a Land Rover. Or can you? you? Stay tuned. 
Well, this is this is the high drama because uh, it looked like there was no solution to this problem, um, and I could see at the next plane that was unloading, the people who had flown that in were, um, I don't know if they're driving or rolling, a four-wheel drive vehicle down two planks that were up on the floor to the door of the plane. Now, wow. next time you're underneath the plane, if you ever are, and look at the height of it, 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 was, it was madness, really, because, I mean, these, these vehicles are tens of thousands of pounds worth, and it was sort of wobbling on these planks, which weren't strong enough really or were they the right width apart as you got down you know anyway they did manage it and so that was an option because there were planks there but you know we said that is too risky you know if it's mm. you you might get away with one but we've got two to unload it oh no we've only got one that's right but um so we i we rejected that as a possibility but we heard that the next plane that was following us in had a new uh, scissor jack on it which had been you know obviously it was the, the whole international operation was compromised because nobody could unload vehicles or anything very heavy. So the next one had been called in from Nairobi and that uh, plane landed. And that plane was one of these things with a tailgate so things could be rolled off the back. They didn't need to have to get off. I mean, you couldn't make it off if you tried. So they were able to roll that scissor jack off. Except that scissor jacks, they're a bit like a truck. You know, they're huge and they take quite a long time to commission and it was all you know, it was all shrink wrapped, and it got labels saying "Do not remove" and read the instructions. You know, it was all like it had come off the factory, brand new. So there wasn't really any way that they were going to be able to get that working before this plane, our plane, had to take off again because um, the captain told me he got he got a very important commission to to pick up some pineapples in Nigeria that, that he he couldn't he couldn't miss. So. This discussion was going on and on, and and finally the captain said, "Look, I can't, I can't wait anymore. I'm going to take that Land Rover to Nigeria, and it'll have to be offloaded there. And then you'll have to figure out what to do about it." And I was thinking, "No, we wouldn't. You know, we'll never get that back because we don't have anyone in Nigeria. We don't know anything about the customs. There's no." For those agreement. of us who are geographically challenged, how far away is Nigeria? Uh, it's a substantial distance. It's probably six hours flight. I think it's in West Africa, oh, so it's wow. still within mm. Africa, but it's 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 right the other side. Mm. Um, so to drive, but I mean, that's like days. Oh, you, yeah, weeks. I would say yeah. probably. And I think there's the Des Sahara Desert in between somewhere. So um, <laughs> not as fun it, as the Serengeti. So, I mean, the captain saying, "We've got to go." You know, I, I'm not. I'm I'm going. That's the end of it. You know, I, I'm sorry, but the deal is a deal. We've got to go. You, your time's expired. And he was starting his pre-flight checks. And I was thinking, gosh, you know, surely there's an answer to this. And then the answer came. You know, in cartoons. Um, like I, I've always got this picture of Snoopy sort of waddling along um, with Linus or Charlie Brown beside him. And the further they walk along, there's a single rain cloud over the top of them that's just dousing them with rain. I think I've invented that in my head from somewhere, but I'm sure in cartoons you do get... Yeah, yeah you single... get individual rain clouds for sure. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's a trope. Yeah, it's, it's a classic. Well, <laughs> it, it was invented on Goma Airport in 1994 because out of nowhere came this almighty thunderstorm with one single rain cloud over the airport. <laughs> and... Um, the air traffic, you know, the, the pilot wanted to go, but the air traffic controllers said, you can't, it's not safe. You have to stay on the ground. 
<laughs> so meanwhile, while all this is going on, you've got people with scissors and tearing this shrink wrap off, reading the instruction manual, and it's all um, operated by hydraulics. So you've got to fill it with hydraulic fluid. There's sort of spanners involved and special tools and who knows what else. And our mechanic, who happened, we'd sent a mechanic out, um, ahead of all of this and he was there you know absolutely teeming with rain thunder and lightning the single rain cloud over the airport and the captain getting more and more impatient to the extent that eventually they got this thing working rolled it up alongside the plane lifted it to the height rolled the land rover off jobs are good <laughs> hey. and then the cloud moved away and well yeah no well, it obviously did because he was allowed to take off to go and get his um his precious his precious pineapples <laughs> yeah title of the episode <laughs> <laughs> so the net result really out of what appeared to be desperate situation was it was all super duper and i was left you know reflecting and even today on how well, you know, never give up hope is, I suppose, the message I took from that. Because I really thought that Land Rover was going off to Nigeria and we'd never see it again. And yet, as it turned out, the next day it was in, in service in, in, in delivering stuff to the refugees. Mm. And that, my friends, was the cracking story I wanted to tell you this, um, this podcast. There's so, so many moving parts in that story yeah. that could so easily not have lined up to mean that that was a success. But hurrah. Very satisfying. I can't even imagine how you go about chartering a flight to pick up water halfway through, take off two tanks. Like, the whole thing seems... Uh, can I just yeah, say, they amazing. weren't tanks. They were Land Rovers. Do <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have been picturing tanks the whole time you've been telling the story, even though you have only said Land Rovers. We, we definitely weren't fueling any rebel movements, I promise you. Yeah. So. <laughs> I bet yeah. Andrew's got a few uh, tales to tell about their journey across yeah, you think. overland. I mean, it's been amazing to drive through the Serengeti and everywhere else. I, I've never heard that properly told. I've only hear snippets. You know, it's one of those things they're all madly... I mean, one of the problems was they couldn't get back, I seem to remember, because the airline had obviously... They hadn't paid for their tickets because they'd flown on, this, on the flight and neither of them wanted to pay to get back. But anyway, I seem to remember they sort of hitchhiked using connections from this cargo. But I mean, yeah, he would. We ought to have a story from him sometime. Um, I know they saw sort of giraffe and lion and things as they went through, and they weren't even sort of on a guided tour, as it mm. were. Wow. So how long did he stay out there for? I think I was there just for a few days, and in fact, we've got time for another story. Yeah. Why not? Go for it. Okay. Well, there's another story attached to that, which is my second best story, actually. And that was, I was there, for, was there for a few days and it had been sort of planned that I would go to visit the other refugee operation in Tanzania because it's sort of in the region. Um, once I'd done whatever I was supposed to do in Goma, I can't even think now what I was supposed to do there, but encourage everybody, you know, deliver the supplies, preside over rainstorms, etc, etc. But, um, and that, that had involved a flying out to Kenya and flying from Kenya to Tanzania, which took three days and cost $700. Um, but that was what the plan was. And um, so shortly before I was due to, to do that, I was looking at a map in Goma, um, this this town where all these thousands of refugees were. And I, I saw how close um, Rwanda and Tanzania, sorry, um, Zaire and Tanzania were, the two refugee operations. 
there's only Rwanda in, in between, and Rwanda is a very small country. And I thought to myself, it's kind of crazy going out there and coming back again. And I had two different things pulling me, really. One was a sort of slight sense of responsibility, you know, family man, two small children, uh, everything hangs on me, which of course it didn't. But, you know, and responsibility. And then kind of a sense of adventure and possibility of, of bypassing the system, which, as you all know, I love to do if I can. <laughs> and um, so anyway, in discussion with other people on around in the area, it turned out there was a lorry that was going from where I was to the capital city in Rwanda the following morning, which was like about half the route. So then it was only like about three or four hours drive to to get to, to where I needed to get to. So it seemed an obvious choice to jump on this lorry the next morning, although nobody else thought that. And in fact, the people in Tanzania, when they heard that this is what I was planning, that's where I was going, they sort of had a sweepstake on how long it would take me and whether anybody would ever see me again. <laughs> it was one of the options. And uh, so if you think of the history that I said at the beginning of what Rwanda had just come through, it it wasn't really a safe place, or was it? You know, there was hardly anybody left anymore. It either um, died or had let, had gone. And I remember as we went on that truck, uh, it was obvious that it was a, a highly populated country because the hills, all the hills, you could see they were, they were cultivated right to the very top of the hill. Every bit of land was used there were houses you know it was all there was no wasteland really and um and yet there were no people you know went through village after village with no people in them and um it's very striking so the lorry reached kigali the capital and uh they said we'll drop you at the airport which sounds good you know i think you might get a lift from there but the airport was completely bombed out it had, it had been destroyed the, the all the plate glass frontage of it was shattered there was sort of potholes in the tarmac and the, there, were, there were nobody there was nobody there there were no flights there was no um nobody at all it was just like a ghost airport really um and that was one of the junctions sort of on the routes that went through rwanda so there i was thinking hmm this feels quite lonely. I do remember feeling the loneliest mm. I've probably ever felt, I think, because there was just nothing from in any direction in terms of human sort of presence. Um, but there were people and there were things going on and I just couldn't see them and it wasn't where I was. Um, but anyway, after, after maybe, I don't know, an hour or something, a cloud of dust in the distance and a, a, a car came along. So you'd think under those circumstances, somebody would stop, wouldn't you? Yeah. But perhaps because because of those circumstances, they didn't stop. They just flew past and left me in a cloud of dust, thinking, hmm. perhaps I will be here for the rest of my life. Spoiler alert, I'm, I wasn't. <laughs> um, so then I do what everyone does when they're in a tight quarter. I resorted to praying for a solution to this natty problem of getting out of the... I was sitting on a tree stump, I can remember it, and I was thinking, oh, God... Hmm please send somebody to take me out of this mess that I've got myself into. And uh, very shortly after, another car came along and uh, that did stop. And this is why it's quite a cool story because that that fellow um, was uh, working for an organisation called the Tanzanian Christian Refugee Service, TCRS. And uh, he was lost. 
he'd lost his way. He was on a track. He didn't know where he was. He he knew he was at the airport, but didn't know how to get to where he wanted to get to. And you could probably guess where he was trying to get to. <laughs> he was trying to get to the very place that I was trying to get to. Hey. So because I'd very carefully studied all the routes, um, I wasn't lost, but he was. So I jumped in with him and I was the answer to his prayer and he was the answer to my prayer, if you want to look at it like that. And mm. uh, so he he was really desperate and I was really desperate. Net result, we ended up sort of in the Happy refugee camp in, in Tanzania, probably only an hour or two later than if uh, somebody had driven it direct, you know, and not stopped. It was kind of like... And to to the extent that when I arrived at the team house, um, in which is a sort of base for the medical team that we had in Tanzania, they knew I was on the way. They didn't know where I was, didn't have any mobile phones in those days or anything. And um, I arrived, I don't know, it's sort of nine o'clock at night or something. And I I know she won't, rhyme, won't remind, mind me telling you this, um, but I opened the door and sort of said, I'm here! And there's a sort of frightened start because the director of that operation, uh, Steve, was snogging one of the nurses in the corner of this room. <laughs> <laughs> just when, okay. just when they, just when they thought nobody could possibly disturb them because they knew where everybody was, I bowled in from from out of Tanzania, having hitchhiked through Rwanda just after. And I mean. Those two ended up getting married, and uh, so... I should hope so, after a bit of snogging. Goodness. (laughs) (laughs) So, at the end of all of that, I was left with the sense that uh, that sometimes there's a purpose in things that we do. And here here I am to tell the tale. Did you have any contact between you two at this during this journey? Like, Max, did you... Mm. I guess guess you didn't have any, I had no idea. ...phone... No. Yeah. No contact until uh, I was just merrily going my own little way, looking after you two little scraps. <laughs> no idea what's going never been, on. Never been described as a scrap before. <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. the biggest scrap I've ever met. <laughs> oh, thanks. Biggest bit of scrap? Oh, no. I, I, I think the thing was, the only real communications was telex sort of and it's is that a very... fax type thing well it was a bit like a fax except it required much more than the phone line a dedicated line which of course there never were in these places so um yeah mm. one sometime later they did invest in satellite phones but they were like sort of 25 dollars a minute or something so you, you never really wanted to use them um that's mm. the jurassic park phone I exactly where my brain went as well. That's my only real experience of a satellite phone is it, from Same. Jurassic Park. <laughs> is it like in a suitcase? And it's, no, it's in a big pile it, of poo. It's yeah, it's a businessman who's on the island has this iconic ringtone, and then later on you realise it's it's actually in the dinosaur because he got eaten. Is that when? And then later on it's in a big pile of poo. Sorry for spoiling Jurassic Park for those who haven't seen it. Was that when he's sitting on the toilet? No. That's no, that's in Jurassic Park 1. I believe this uh, is in Jurassic Park 3. No, this is Jurassic Park 1. Yes, I think Uh-oh. so, because I think Jurassic. I've probably only seen one. And I'm, well, that no, needs to be rectified. I, 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 I promise you it's in Jurassic Park 1. I have Laura a really Dern, strong feeling it isn't. Laura cause... Dern just goes... <laughs> pulls it out. And then, they, and then they have their big fight in the water with the... Um, 
with the T-Rex and the phone is sliding on the boat. It's not a T-Rex that they're fighting in this scene. It's a different dinosaur and the first one is all about the T-Rex. I feel so strongly about this. I'm going to be so sad if I'm wrong. I'm sure you're wrong. Dear listener, let (laughs) us know if you watch Jurassic (laughs) Park. Google it while we're on here, sorry. (laughs) Can you remember the, uh, the ringtone is the question? No, that's. But isn't that? That's Nokia, isn't it? That's the Nokia one. I don't because that's what my head went to. But it's it's Jurassic Park three. Yeah, sorry everyone. How, how do we know about um, it being a satellite phone? That's my question. As opposed to a mobile phone. Someone had the ring. Because they describe it as such. Because they're out on yeah. some random Jurassic island. It has like a box with it and a long aerial. That oh, you okay. Like, okay. You... Yeah, I thought I thought it was um, small. Well, if it's small enough, to be... the box didn't get swallowed. I guess this is real detail now that we need to know. Mm. Not sure. We'll have to rewatch it. <laughs> they might have uh, missed that detail. You know, yeah, because when you talk, when I having personally used a satellite phone, they're in a little suitcase. You know, it's like it's not something you hold in your hand, kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> this might anyway. have been an updated satellite phone. Could have been. Anyway, Jurassic Park discourse aside. Yeah. Yes. That was some. That was some great uh, story time. Thank some you. Great did story you... time. <laughs> <laughs> did you know? Just this is totally related, but not related. Is the new iPhone has a feature where you can use satellites to send an emergency. Uh, you can have an emergency phone call from it now. So where it used to be a box, it's now just built into a phone. Amazing. Which is cool. You you even have to like angle it so that it points at a satellite. It tells you where to point it. It's crazy. Very cool Whoa. though. Quite remarkable. Bonkers. Other phones are available. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you for telling us more tales. More tales yeah, that... of the nineteen nineties. Um, if I remember correctly, at the end of episode twenty four, we were on quite the cliffhanger. Were we? That's was, that. That's my memory that you'd sort of set set us up for the next. Well, it, well, yeah, it was just that thing that it's the trailer for the rest of my life. But then I've gone backwards. But, yeah, no, no, that's absolutely fine. I'm not. I'm not commenting on uh, on on uh, the journey. I'm just saying, get ready for episode twenty six, basically, because absolutely, it's, like, it's going to smash it. Yeah, ex- yeah. exactly. <laughs> it's it's going to smash it. <laughs> it's going to hit you around the face like a wet fish, oh, <laughs> which we all want. Uh, can I opt out please well is it time to say goodbye from me I think it's time to say goodbye from me definitely goodbye from me and it's time to say goodbye from me too goodbye goodbye